The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Hello and welcome to The Drinking Hour here on Food FM with me, David Kermode, episode 65. And we're welcoming one of the big names in Australian wine, uh, Teresa Hastenreuder, chief winemaker at Petaluma. Uh, she's relatively new in that particular role. So we'll hear what she has planned for this much loved and highly respected wine brand. Plus, as always, your medal winning recommendations from the IWSC Hall of Fame in 2022. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. Teresa Hoitzenroder trained as a microbiologist, but wine was her calling. A fascination with aromas and tastes presenting an opportunity to combine her creativity with her love of science. Starting as cellar hand at Yolumba, she worked her way up the ranks until last year, after just over a quarter of a century there, uh, she decided to move on, uh, taking the no doubt irresistible role of senior winemaker for Petaluma, owned by the huge Accolade wines. Uh, the role encompasses not just the Adelaide Hills, her base, uh, but also Kunawara and the Clare Valley too. Uh, she has experience with sparkling, white and red wines, uh, which is just as well uh, as they make all three. And I'm delighted to say uh, she joins us now. Teresa, welcome to The Drinking Hour. Thanks, David. Thanks for having me. I mentioned your 25 years or more at uh, Yolumba, but let's go back right to the beginning. And I talked there about your training as a microbiologist. Tell us then how you got into wine. Well, I guess, you know, I, I first had a love for science at school. And then I guess my once I graduated from university, my first job, first day in the lab, I was like, oh, no, actually, this isn't really what I want to do for the rest of my life. Um, and I guess the journey was sort of on after that to kind of find, you know, what what I was going to do, what my passion, I guess my real passion was. And I guess I fell into the wine industry. I worked as a microbiologist for a couple of years and then joined Yolumba as a microbiologist, um, which is quite a different proposition to being in a lab. And then I had a chance tasting with one of the young winemakers because uh, the tasting lab was actually right next door to um, the laboratory. And uh, hey, there was a lineup of Australian Shirazes um, from all over Australia. And I was just like, I was just blown away by um, the differences between the structures of the wines, the aromas, the flavours, the textures. And I thought, you know what, this is what I want to do. So it was, you know, that was it. The light bulb came on and, and sort of went from there. I really struggled with science at school. Um, I was very much on the kind of, you know, I, I, the languages and the that, that sort of creative side. Uh, how fundamental is a really good knowledge of science uh, to being a winemaker? Well, look, I mean, there is a lot of technicality about, you know, some aspects of winemaking, and I guess the science of it is quite important. I think perhaps, perhaps red winemaking is more sort of intuitive and blending, whereas for me, I guess because a lot of my career has been spent with white and sparkling, that is very technical. Um, so it is important, but I think, you know, you sort of can't have one without the other. The science is important, but, you know, when you're out in a vineyard, you, you're tasting fruit, you've got sort of analysis with you, but I guess the focus is really on how it tastes and, this, and that. And I guess that's where the instinctive creative side sort of first starts and it sort of goes from there as you go through. So 
you can't you, you can ha- you can't have one without the other but yeah they're both important but for me it's sort of a blend of the two which has always been what's 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 really what I really love about winemaking yeah I said it's that that combination of of, of creativity and and science um, looking at your um, your sort of early years you're definitely uh, sort of strong on both going back again to those early years you turn up then at um, Yolumba and uh, for those yeah. listening um, we interviewed uh, on this program about two months ago the wonderful Louisa Rose uh, from Yolumba so uh, that name will be familiar to, to regular um, listeners and um, you really did go right from the very bottom to, to the top of that particular uh, winery didn't you yeah well I yeah, I started working with the winemakers as microbiologists, but then essentially I resigned from that position and went back to basics and worked in the cellar while I was studying my winemaking and then obviously got opportunities as one, once I graduated, then sort of worked my way through, you know, winemaking and, and various roles through there. So, yeah, it was very much the ground up. I've interviewed so many winemakers, really successful ones like you, who who basically did a, a turn as a, a cellar hand. Uh, for those who aren't yeah. familiar with the workings of a winery, how important is doing that and what does it actually entail? Well, I guess, you know, the cellar is kind of the backbone of the winery because essentially um, all the cellar, the cellar team are basically doing all the, I guess, the ground, like the hands-on work that's required for winemaking. So they're kind of doing all the, you know, undertaking the directions of the winemaker. I mean, and if you're in a small winery, you're probably doing everything, being the cellar hand and the winemaker. But obviously I've worked with sort of larger wineries, so I haven't really had to do that. But I think it is really important when you're kind of directing the cellar on what to do and how to, to put the wines together that that you have that sort of understanding of what that sort of you know the the practical elements of because you know you get a lot more respect that way from the seller because they sort of know that you've been there and done it um and that you're not just sort of you know making stuff up and there's a reason for what you you understand exactly what they're having to do to um to get the jobs done so yeah it's really important i mean winemaking we're the front person but essentially there's a whole team of people that are involved in making wine um and we just get to do i guess the more fun aspects where we're sort of front person and talking about the wines but you know you need lab you need the cellar um bottling you know it's it, it's a huge team that goes into making wine and we just sort of make it look glamorous but in actual it's just a lot of hard work and you worked uh, under robert hill smith in um, australian wine and uh, you know, alongside uh, louisa rose who i mentioned uh, just now what did working there in that uh, team latterly at a, a really senior level Level. Um, what did that kind of instill in you? Oh, look, I mean, really, my whole winemaking ethos is grounded from what I learnt at Yolumba. Um, and I'm really grateful for all of the things that I have learned there. But I guess being family owned and having a very long history, uh, there was really a focus on, you know, embracing the heritage and the culture that has gone into wines that have been around for a long, long time and and styles and brands that people know. But using that sort of experience and knowledge of many, many years to, to then not just like take that for granted, but use that to keep moving the wines forward. So an appreciation of that and, and all of the things that have gone together to make a wine what it is and a style what it is, that sort of connection to the site you know, we had a Yolumba had a lot of individual vineyards, special vineyards, and and that connection to the individual site and how special that, you know, coming together a variety region site is was really really important, and that's something that 
that, you know, drives my winemaking still, particularly with reference to Petaluma now. And also, I guess that whole thing of, uh, I guess that gut instinct thing and um, what I said before about um, trusting your gut and the instinct, not just the numbers. I remember having many times, um, you know, particularly at the start of a vintage, being in Lou's office and saying, oh, you know, I just don't, you know, there's a lot of pressure to get it right. And they, particularly those first picking decisions, you know, when you have more difficult or challenging vintages, you, you want to make sure that you are making the right picking decision. And I remember, you know, saying Lou's was like, you know, does it taste right? Does it feel right? You know, let the vineyard tell you that's very much, you know, I carry that with you to this day. It's about that sort of instinct um, and trusting your judgment. So, yeah, and, and I pass that on to winemakers that I now work with too. We're saying exactly the same thing to me. You know, how does it feel when you walk in the vineyard? How does it taste? That And that's the that's the key to, to making great wine. Yeah, I mean, chatting to Louisa, she must be a, um, an amazing uh, person to have as a um, a source of, of, of wisdom and uh, experience. So um, it must have been a, a real wrench for you to leave Yolumba, I'd have thought. Yeah, it was. I mean, I've, I was there for a long time. It was really very um, a family culture. Um, so it was kind of like leaving home, <laughs> you know, leaving home and, and leaving your family um, and moving out sort of thing. So, yeah, it was it was it was difficult and I, I, I really do miss the people and, and I suppose you're kind of leaving the, your babies, your wines that you've been in so involved with for so many years behind, but in very good hands, might I add. Well, let's talk about Petaluma then. So a great name in Australian wine. What attracted you uh, particularly to, to taking on this uh, role of, of senior winemaker? Oh, look, again, I think going back to sort of my history with Yolumba, I guess that sort of recognition of of working with such a great, you know, well-known, well-loved brand with such a history. And I see a lot of sort of parallels between that and some of the brands that I was working with at Yolumba. So, yeah, very much that and sort of that whole sort of pioneering. Brian Crozer was such a pioneer and, and the sort of the winemaking ethos that he brought and that sort of um, philosophy of sort of meticulous winemaking really sort of resonated with me. So I think it's a really... You know, that, that was part of the attraction and getting to work with, you know, very classic varieties from classic regions. Um, yeah, very much a, a draw card. You mentioned Brian Crozer there and uh, the yeah. uh, traditional method sparkling wine, which I've uh, been fortunate to taste in the past, uh, is named in his uh, honour. Tell us a bit about him and uh, uh, the kind of uh, history of, of Petaluma. Well, I guess he started he started the brand in 1976 and you know he he really is very widely recognized both in Australia and internationally as a real visionary of the industry and a real innovator and has had a huge influence on Australian winemaking. And I guess when he sort of founded Petaluma, it was sort of founded on the philosophy of what I talked about before with that sort of that synergy of the right variety in the right region, which seems quite sort of, you know, obvious when you talk about it now, but Back then, it was sort of, you know, mid-70s, sort of founding sort of era of Australian, particularly table wine making. And that sort of terroir-driven approach um, wasn't, you know, we were only just sort of starting to focus on that. It's, it, you know, it's very much part of the industry today with individual site and 
and recognition of that. But but he was really sort of a driving factor in sort of getting that to the forefront of Australian winemaking. So, you know, that still very much forms the basis of Petaluma today with that sort of focus on classic varieties in classic regions. So, yeah. Mm, well, when you and I met, which was about a month ago in London, when you were uh, allowed out of Australia again for the first time yeah. uh, in, a, in a while post-pandemic, uh, um, one of the things you said at, at lunch, actually, um, which really um, made me think, really surprised me, was uh, what you've just mentioned there about the right grape mm. in the right place. And I'd never really thought in the context of Australian wine that that hadn't been a consideration in the past. Well, I guess it sort of was and it wasn't because prior to the 60s, there are obviously, you know, the early sort of days of, of table wine production in Australia. But a lot of the focus prior to that had been in fortified and probably more red wine production. Um, but then we were really just exploring some of the newer regions in Australia back then. And, and Brian, in fact, was the first person to plant Chardonnay in the Adelaide Hills. And when you think about, you know, that was in the sort of late 70s. Back then, you know, Chardonnay is everywhere now, but back then Chardonnay in Australia was, you know, almost an alternative variety. So, you know, when you think about that, how he's come about to the fact that he's going to grow Chardonnay in Australia, which wasn't a big variety back then, and how that sort of exploded now into diversity of, of Chardonnay across Australia, but, you know, and, and the fact that now Australia... Um, in the Adelaide Hills is such a renowned variety. I mean, it's pretty pioneering, but we just sort of take it for granted now as particularly younger winemakers in the industry. So, yeah, it, that's what I'm saying. It seems very obvious now, but it actually probably wasn't back then. Um, mm. And the Australian industry has come a long way in, you know, a relatively short space of time when you sort of compare it in the context of sort of internationally. The wines at uh, Petaluma have this uh, very fine pedigree, as uh, you mentioned there. As a new broom, how do you go about changing things, making your mark as a winemaker, but also conscious that you don't want to kind of... Um, mm. sort of kill the golden goose as it were yeah and that's always a fine line I think particularly when you're taking on a brand like Petaluma where it is very well known um, people are very familiar with the style but I think yeah and, you know and as winemakers we all want to put our mark on 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 a wine that that's who we are as winemakers that's why we do it we want to try new things but yeah I think it's just very much our global wine director is as has um, come up coined the phrase it's evolution, not revolution. And I really, really like that because it's a really good way of sort of expressing that respecting what's been before, but then kind of taking taking it, you know, into keeping it modern, keeping it fresh, trying new things, but doing it gradually in a way that's, that's not going to, you know, throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak, but take the wines in a good direction and keep them evolving. You must be under quite a bit of pressure. I mean, not literally from your bosses. I, I don't mean that. I mean that that kind of pressure that you must feel in terms of sort of making that impact. People waiting for you for you to kind of have an impact on the wines. It, it must be it, it must be a pressure that's that's with a big brand like Petaluma with these very celebrated wines. It must be quite a significant pressure. I'd have thought that you feel. Yes and no. I mean, it. it I. It's funny. I did sort of feel similar at Yolumba at times with with some of you know. It's like you're sort of taking the baby and being gentle with it and just you know taking care. But you don't try and tend to focus on that too much. It's just about you just want to make the wines better and and keep evolving 
solving them and going from there. So yeah, I don't, I, I try not to think about that too much, but just get in and, and get to know the vineyards and get to know the wines and, and really kind of just keep chipping away, I guess. Yeah, well, if you're trying not to think about it very much, then I'm probably not helping very much then. Uh, but, um, <laughs> I know, I think it probably comes more from the outside than, you know, yeah. I, I'm sure just... it does. Yeah, you're working in the Adelaide Hills, as you mentioned, um, and also in uh, Kunawara um, and uh, the Clare Valley too. Um, just tell us a bit, uh, again, for those uh, listening here, um, uh, and my own Australian wine geography is, is not as good as it should be, to be honest, because uh, I've never mm. uh, visited um, in, in a wine context. But um, for, for someone who doesn't know these uh, regions, uh, let's go through them. T tell us about the, the Adelaide Hills first and what we're uh, dealing with there in terms of, of terroir. Okay, so the Adelaide Hills, and um, in particular, we, we sort of focus a lot on Piccadilly Valley. So the Adelaide Hills is really just almost, it runs um, from north to south, the Mount Lofty Ranges, um, behind Adelaide, which is the capital city of South Australia. Um, so um, it, it's quite close to the city, but quite elevated. So you have all of the, you know, there's quite a lot of different topography, if you like, lots of little valleys and nooks and, and different sort of microclimates within the Adelaide Hills and Piccadilly Valley is sort of one of those. There's quite a sort of underlying sort of rock base to to the wine. So there's sort of a, a minerality to the acid drive that you get out of the wines. And, it you know, because it's quite elevated, I mean, the highest point um, is probably about mm, 550 meters above sea level um you have you know the, the ripening season is very long so you get this really sort of lovely eat long even ripening um with that elevation you know cool nights it is quite a lot cooler in the adelaide hills than even in adelaide so the nights are a few degrees cooler the days are significantly cooler in the hills so it it's very conducive to making quality chardonnay um, because you get that sort of lovely long ripening period. So you get this sort of concentration of flavours, but very sort of fine, elegant wines because you have that sort of lovely natural acid drive. And when I met you, we tasted some of the really beautiful Chardonnay uh, wines, uh, actually uh, crafted by your predecessor, because obviously you're uh, still relatively new in the role. But <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. tell us about the way you're evolving Chardonnay, what your plan for it is. So I think, again, it's just sort of chipping away, getting to know the vineyards. I mean, we have a few different sites in that in the Piccadilly Valley in particular. They've all been part of the um, Petaluma sort of, um, they've all gone into that wine since day dot. And the, the sites are really quite close together, but they do have differences within them. And I'm really sort of just trying to get my head around how those differences are expressed. Um, so this vintage was really sort of, a really good way of starting to get my head around that um, but literally you know there's no more than sort of five k's probably not even between all of the sites so you could almost walk between them um, but a lot of differences um, within them looking at um, oak as well traditionally Petaluma's used a lot of d and j oak dargay and jagley that terrible french pronunciation there but but sort of looking with at different selections within those coopers but also then looking at different coopers as well, just to kind of tweak the oak a bit, a bit more solids, wild ferment incorporation. I'm just trying to look at um, how we can play a bit more the texture of the wine um, and also malolactic fermentation as well. So it's just kind of taking the pieces out of it all and just trying to put it all together and, and just tweak 
and learn more and more. And, and that really only comes with time, to be honest. And just explain uh, for those listening uh, who might be familiar with the term malolactic fermentation, but don't necessarily know uh, what it is and what it's for in terms of its impact on the wine. Just just explain MLF for us, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, so um, MLF is the conversion, and this is getting a bit wine techy, but conversion of malic to lactic acid, so the natural acids that are in the grape. And that conversion is carried out by um, specific bacteria called lactic acid bacteria. I guess the impact that it has on the flavour is that I suppose malic has a bit of a, malic acid has a bit of a harder sort of harder edge to it, and can make the acidity seem quite edgy. Whereas lactic acid, that conversion is a little bit softer on the palate. So I guess malos are kind of useful tool in white wines, particularly Chardonnay, um, to kind of have an impact on on that mouthfeel and texture. I typically haven't used um, used a lot of it in previous winemaking because we ha- I haven't felt the sort of need um, to do that. But in regions where you have you know high levels of natural acidity, say Tasmania and the Piccadilly Valley, for example, in the hills, um, those acids can seem a bit edgy and sit out on the palate. So what we're trying to do is just kind of moderate that acidity and make it seem more in balance. So it's, but you know that can also be at the expense of some sort of taking some freshness out of the wine because it does sort of change the sort of aroma profile a little. So it's really about finding that right balance to get to keep that sort of brightness and freshness that you want but getting that balance on the palate right so I'm still trying to get my head around that a little bit and you can do just a bit of it um, and then stop it uh, arrest that process absolutely yeah so that you know there's a few different ways you can do it you could put you know you could inoculate for the with the bacteria and pull it across the whole blend and then just like do a partial and stop them early or you could do select a few parcels and just put them all the way through so I'm kind of playing around with that to get my head around you know how that best sits with the wines I think previously they have been pretty much done where they've um, inoculated the whole lot and then just stopped them but yeah I think again different winemakers have different philosophies on that so I'm just sort of still trying to get my head around that one and once you've done it, you've done it. You can't undo it. Correct. So it's really about keeping tasting. And, um, you know, like when, when I came in last year, everything had been inoculated because I sort of started at the end of uh, 20, you know, just at the finish as vintage was finishing um, in 2021, looked at the wines and thought, no, actually, we need to stop them because I was sort of seeing that sort of loss of freshness and I was sort of, I wanted to keep that sort of vibrancy that that Piccadilly Valley has, which is one of the key sort of defining characters that I really love about Piccadilly Valley. So, yeah, we 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 basically cut them reasonably early, but I think, you know, at the right point. But, again, it's just like tasting and looking at the wines and, you know, assessing them all the time to make sure that you're, you're, you're doing it at the right point. Thank you. That was uh, uh, really, uh, I'm sure, fascinating to those who have a, uh, an enthusiasm for wine, but not necessarily a technical <laughs> knowledge of it. And uh, t- tell us about another um, of the wines um, I've tasted. I think it was absolutely delicious. Um, uh, it's a favourite of mine, actually. Um, Hanlin Hill Riesling, yeah. um, another wine for which Petaluma is um, celebrated. 
uh, rightly. Uh, tell us about that. That's been one wine that I guess resonated with me because um, as a young winemaker, it was sort of always a benchmark Riesling in Australia. Um, the Hanlon Hill Riesling in, is in the northern eastern end of the Clare. And it's funny because the Clare Valley, you don't sort of get a sense when you're going through that it is elevated, but actually sort of you're sort of going down the main drag, if you like, and all the vineyards sort of go off to the side and um, and you're sort of going the into the back blocks, if you like. And then once you do that, you sort of get a sense of how Clare is quite elevated, a lot of vineyard sites. Um, and the Hanlon Hill has about, I think it's sitting about 500 metres of elevation. And I guess what I love about the vineyard is that it um, it's like the old school vineyards of Australia. Um, it's it's all contoured rows, which is, you know, it's, it's not modern viticulture these days. So but what I love about it is that you get a sense of the lay of the land and the topography of the vineyard. So you get a sense of that elevation when you see the sort of contoured rows because they're following sort of the lay of the land. And it kind of reminds me of, of Pusey Vale, which is our, was the Alumbas Eden Valley Riesling vineyard. So there's sort of a similarity there. But um, I'm really loving working with Claire because, um, you know, I have a real love for Riesling and, and the Claire for me, I've spent a lot of time obviously making Eden Valley Riesling, but the Claire for me has a different sort of profile. But, you know, the key thing is that it sort of has this sort of lovely generosity across the mid palate, which is a very sort of Claire Valley, Claire Riesling thing. But then, you know, it has this sort of lovely natural acid drive, which sort of underpins the structure of the wine. And that for me is is a key to, to, to great Riesling because it's what gives them that ageability um, and cellar ability, you know, and you can, you know, enjoy them as young wines, but then also, you know, 10 years down the track, with, which is, you know, a feature of the Hanlon Hill Riesling. I've seen, I've done a few um, back vintage tastings and um, there's a few classic vintages that come to mind. The tw 2002 and the 2010 were outstanding vintages um, and those wines are still so fresh Unfortunately, I guess most people don't, you know, these days it's about drinking now and people don't sort of sell a wine. But, um, you know, in terms of Riesling World, they're really missing out because those wines can be just superb um, as aged wines. Yeah. No, I mean, Riesling is so um, underrated still, um, I think, more mm. widely, but is, is you know, is, is clearly a, a real wine lover's um, favourite. Um, if we're, uh, I think both Clare Valley and Eden Valley are much better known these days in our market. Uh, people look out for those wines. Um, just just explain um, uh, the, the differences then. Uh, you, you touched upon it just then in, in terms of mid-palate uh, texture, but, mm. but just explain um, what we would expect from Clare Valley versus Eden Valley in Riesling. I guess what I said about that sort of mid-palate texture, although having said that, there are a with Eden Valley and perhaps Polish Hill River, which is a subregion of Clare, um, they share more similarity with that really defining acid structure. I think um, Eden Valley can be quite linear, whereas I think Clare has a bit more of that generosity across the mid palate. Um, both have amazing ability to um, age, but I guess the Clare is probably sits more in that sort of floral you know, particularly Hanlon Hill Riesling has a real sort of jasmine blossom character, almost verging on sort of stone fruits. Um, whereas Eden Valley is probably more on the limes, sometimes the 
what I call bath salts, you know, like the, you know, the, the salts used to sprinkle in the bath that have those aromatics. Um, it's probably an old-fashioned term to use, but anyway. Um, but, yeah, definitely more in the citrus lime for Eden Valley and probably tending towards more of the florals in Clare. Mm. And just a different way they sit on the palate with their acidity, I think. Uh, by the way, bath salts, um, yeah, you don't see them very often these days, but I love bath salts. <laughs> really, I know, I'm showing my age probably. <laughs> Me too. Um, then the reds. Um, you're working um, in classic Cabernet country uh, in uh, Kunawara now as well that's been a really a great thing I'm I'm really loving being back doing reds even though I always thought I'd probably just still be always focused on and white and sparkling certainly doing Petaluma has given me an opportunity to to re-embrace reds and you know I, I think there's I'll probably annoy people by saying this in Australia but I think you know there's two very classic regions in Australia for growing Cabernet and that's Margaret River and, and Coonawarra but very different styles. But the Coonawarra is you know it's like no other as I was saying when I was in the UK I think when you're at the lunch David about it being so flat like Holland it you know I'm not sure that there's any other wine region that I can think of both in Australia or the rest of the world that's as flat as the Coonawarra um, but you know it's a very different dynamic of ripening there it's so cold um, and you know even though people don't think about it because it's so flat it's only about 60 k's from the coast but you don't get that sense you, you very much get the sense that you're inland when you're in Coonawarra um, but I think there's this phenomenon called the bonnie upwelling and I'm not going to be very good at describing this but basically because it's so flat and the way the sort of ocean currents go there is actually a bit of a an oceanic maritime influence in the Kunawara even though you don't get the sense of it when you're there but it's just because that that landmass is so flat um, and I think you know if it wasn't for that Kunawara probably actually wouldn't the fruit wouldn't ripen because it is very late ripening in Kunawara we're talking you know very you know, into autumn very much all the time, sort of in, you know, April. And that whole sort of special soil profile that, that the Kunawara has, which is like no other, and, you know, that sort of combination of soil, climate, again, going back to that sort of synergy of, of region, site, all of that, and variety um, is what makes it, you know, such a defining Cabernet region. And uh, you have the Terra Rossa soils famously there. Yes. Um, we spoke to Sarah Pigeon about these uh, soils um, a few months back. Uh, she she made me laugh because she was explaining that uh, back in the day they built a dual carriageway up uh, a large sort of section of um, this lovely soil. Um, just just explain what uh, oh. the the Terra Rossa soil is in terms of its impact on the wines. Yeah, well, it's just that you know there's a deep sort of you know there's a underpinning of limestone layer like rock if you like because it was an old inland sea back in the day talking geology here but um and then you've got these sort of varium levels of red soil over that limestone and the defining factor for Kunawara and the region itself is that sort of strip of red soil the terra rossa as you go sort of outside of that very sort of narrow long strip, um, you get much sort of more dark black soils and it really does change the profiles of the wine. So yeah, it, it's quite quite amazing to see the differences between fruit grown on that sort of red terrorosa strip versus the other soils. And there was this, you know, ongoing argy-bargy for a while there about which 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 wineries were in the, in the Terra Rossa zone. I'm sure Sarah probably talked about that. She probably 
much more across that than Ireland. But, yeah, there was quite a lot of argy-bargy about which wineries were going to make it in that Terra Rossa definition of the Coonawarra. You mentioned uh, you, you've made sparkling white and red wines across your career, possibly orange ones too, I don't know. But um, uh, do you have a <laughs> colour that's or a style that you enjoy working with more than others? Probably, I would say it's probably a bit more variety driven in the fact that I'd probably say Chardonnay and whether that's sparkling or still, I'm happy to do either. I think just because of versatility of the of the variety and that you can play with it as a table wine or a sparkling wine. Um, and I just love the wines that it makes in terms of what I can do as a winemaker, but also in terms of food and wine matching as well, which I mean, is something that you know, goes hand in hand with making wine. And uh, it's fair to say Chardonnay is always described as uh, the winemaker's friend in terms of its versatility. You've got a lot more to play with Mm. potentially than you have, for Mm. example, with, say, Riesling, haven't you? Yeah, but I mean, you know, they're very different propositions. I mean, I love Riesling as well, but um, you probably, I would about Riesling as being quite a scary variety in the fact that, you know, it's very expressive with sight. Um, and there's nowhere to hide with Riesling because it's such a pure expression of the vineyard and there's probably not as much winemaking artefact that goes in there. So if you make, you know, if you don't have the right site or you don't make the right picking decision, it's very evident in Riesling. Um, so in that sense, it's quite scary because everything you do has to be very precise. Um, I think Chardonnay, there's a bit more smoke and mirrors you can kind of play with the wines a bit more you've got more opportunity to kind of you know use winemaking artifacts to kind of build the palette to play with textures and things whereas Riesling's quite a different proposition in that in that respect. To what extent do you look to the northern hemisphere um, when you're uh, winemaking for, for kind of benchmarking uh, you might hate this question actually uh, some people uh, kind of do in Australia uh, but Burgundy uh, for, for Chardonnay Bordeaux for, for, for Cabernet you know to, to the I don't know the Mosul for, 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 for Riesling do, yeah. do you look at those wines or is that kind of comparison rather outdated? I think it depends on who you ask that question to as a winemaker I reckon I mean my personal opinion is that I, I don't like the comparison and I've always been quite vocal about that, I guess, not because I don't think we can take ideas from that and 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 use that as a benchmark, but I think I kind of like the Wine Australia slogan that they've sort of got out as part of their branding now, which is something like making wine our way, because I think that sums it up quite nicely for me in the sense that, you know, we're making wine to express our piece of dirt, our soil, our region, um, and, I, I, and I don't know, you know, it, you can't compare the two because the, that combination of soil, climate, variety, that whole synergy that comes together for an individual site is very different expressed, say, in the Adelaide Hills to Merceau or, you know, I, I just don't, don't think it's, it's really a valid, valid comparison. You can say whether, what you like about the two wines, but we're all trying to just make our expression of of our site. So um, you're a passionate advocate for uh, Australian wine. Uh, you mentioned the the slogan there. Um, if you were describing uh, Australian wine to someone who had you know no knowledge of wine, uh, what would you say makes Australia so special when it comes to wine? Oh, I think 
I think that the fact that, um, you know, we don't have any constraints around our winemaking, we have a freedom to express the wine and the site, how we, how we choose. And I guess there's a lot of diversity in Australia, obviously it's big, big differences in regions, but, and I guess personality, if I can use that, I don't know. Uh, yeah. I, I think it's just that we have the freedom to, to make the wines that we want to, um, without constraints around a style or and the diversity that brings to all of the you know wine producers across Australia, I think you know that's something to be celebrated. Something else to be celebrated is the uh, uh, sheer number of very successful, um, some would say pioneering Australian women winemakers, and um, I appear to have spoken to a bunch of them on this uh, program. <laughs> um, and I've asked this question before, so I'll ask it to you as well. Um, uh, have you ever encountered issues, problems uh, doing your job in your sort of 25 odd years of, of doing it uh, based on your gender? No, I, I have to say, honestly, I haven't. I've, I've had nothing but support and respect. And um, I know that's not always everyone's experience. And, you know, certainly things have changed and there's many more female winemakers than when, when I first started in the industry. Um, and certainly cellar and viticulture are very still very heavily weighted towards males. But I think that, you know, if you do a good job, doesn't really matter. Your gender doesn't matter, um, you know. And I, I guess I've been fortunate. I mean, in the early days of my career, there was, you know, not that many female winemakers, but, you know, more and more, I guess, um, in the, the wineries that I've worked at, it's been actually quite a high proportion of female winemakers, So, which is probably not necessarily the industry average, but that's just my experience. And maybe that's because I've been in, the, in larger, larger companies. What would your advice be to others who might uh, wish to em emulate your success then? Um, I guess it just going into winemaking, I think I remember once one of my previous bosses said to me, it's a love job. <laughs> um, and it certainly is. I mean, most winemakers are very passionate. But, you know, if, if you're about getting paid lots of money or doing nine to five, uh, it's probably not the job for you. So I'd say you have to be prepared to work pretty hard um, and long hours. And I think you just need to be passionate. And I think probably ultimately you just need to be yourself because there's many different. You just, yeah, be yourself and work hard. That's good. Simple. Australian style, tell it <laughs> as it is kind of advice. No, that, that's good. If you could work with a grape variety that you can't currently work with, what might it be, do you think? This is a really difficult question because I have to say, I'm probably working with all the varieties that I love right now. And I've had in my career at Yolumba because it's been very much, um, you know, quite innovative and, and had the nursery. So was exposed to a lot of different alternative varieties. I've I've had an opportunity to work with quite a lot and I guess make wines, create wines from styles, cre create the styles and, and, and wines. But I don't know. I reckon that's a really hard one. I don't think I can answer that. Okay. Well, that's all right. That's allowed. Um, <laughs> I mean, it sounds like you're... Um, 
in sort of nirvana then with the great varieties uh, you you are working with uh, what maybe would your something desert... i don't know a skewer <laughs> yeah what would your desert island skewer. wine be if you uh if, if you if you had to choose a wine uh we don't like to make this sort of death row or anything it makes it a bit grim so it's just a, <laughs> in your in your perfect happy place uh what would be the wine that you would choose uh, for your desert island i guess that depends on the budget is there a budget <laughs> no no you can have whatever you like <laughs> Well, I think if I was talking internationally, um, I'd probably say champagne, namely Salon, because I, I love Salon, but I, you know, I've only had it once or twice because, you know, it's, it's way above my pay grade. Um, but I sort of love the, you know, the purity of that wine, just amazing. And maybe from an Australian perspective, aged Riesling from the Clara Eden Valley, because I could probably sit and drink that all day. And if I was stuck on an island, yeah, that'd be pretty good. Well, you are stuck on an island, I suppose, to an extent, but it just happens to be an extremely large one. <laughs> Very big, <laughs> where there's plenty of wine opportunities. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, they sound like great uh, desert island wines. That would be a, a desert island worth uh, visiting. Um, listen, it's, it's fascinating to talk to you. Um, uh, good luck in the new role. I mean, it's not that new now because you've been doing it, you know, well over a year, but um, it must be really exciting. So um, thanks for sharing uh, some of that uh, with us, Teresa. And thanks for our mini masterclass on uh, malolactic fermentation as well. <laughs> no worries. Thanks, David. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Thank you. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Well, to round off this week's episode, it's uh, time to feature some medal winners from the IWSC 2022. These are the awards that were judged uh, back in uh, May, uh, early May this year. Uh, let's start uh, in the Adelaide Hills um, to keep it topical uh, with uh, a gold medal winning Chardonnay, yum. Penfolds Reserve Bin 20A Chardonnay 2020 won a whopping 96 points uh, to scoop that gold medal. Uh, the judges included Freddie Bulmer of the Wine Society, uh, buyer for Australia and a regular on the drinking hour. He was on only last week. Um, plus Alex Hunt, Master of Wine, Gene Waring, another MW, and Brad Horn of Wine Time London. If you haven't seen Brad on Instagram, uh, check him out. Um, uh, they said, uh, this is the tasting note, uh, richness of ripe apples, peaches and pears, full, ripe, rounded palate with crafted freshness, holding the fruits together in gelled harmony, elegant and restrained, yet weighty and present, a well-made wine, reassuringly correct in every possible way. And that is a gold medal winner. And then uh, Teresa and I were talking about Riesling and uh, our shared love for it um, and its incredible ageing ability as well. Here's a medal winner from the Clare Valley uh, with a little bit of age already, though it's still a baby, really. Uh, Killicanoon Wines, Mort's Reserve Riesling 2018, won a silver medal. The judges, including Alex Hunt, MW again, Anna Sapungui, uh, MW, and Isabel, Master Sommelier, and also Chef Roger Jones, previous guest here on The Drinking Hour, uh, said this, beautifully crafted with notes of lime and elderflower on the nose. The palate is full of flavour, boasting lemon and green fig, complex with a long finish. 
And let's stay in South Australia for one more medal winner, this time a, a winning gin. Uh, Little Juniper Distilling's signature gin won a silver medal from the panel, which included gin maestro Olivier Ward. Um, they said this green and grassy character with aromatics of lime leaf, florals and anise. The palate is herbal with good flavour complexity and creamy notes, which carry through onto the finish. Good balance and definition. Uh, definitely one I need to try. And let's hop across the uh, Tasman to New Zealand. A great performance this year. Really good to see um, as a big fan of New Zealand wines myself. Up six gold medals in the 2022 competition. Here's a name you'll be familiar with. Uh, the Ned Pinot Noir 2020 uh, from Marlborough, which might be more synonymous with Sauvignon Blanc, but uh, produces a delicious fruit forward Pinot Noir as well, uh, if you don't already know that. Um, this was a gold medal winner. The judging panel included me on this occasion, um, alongside uh, Isabel, Master Sommelier and Andrea Altavilla, also a Somme, and I can still remember this wine, actually. Here's our tasting note. A refined example with extraordinary concentration, layered with raspberry, umami and herbal notes. This has wonderful complexity and a long, sweet, spiced finish. Tannins and acidity are masterfully balanced. And finally for this time, an inexpensive wine that scored a strong silver medal for Aldi. Freeman's Bay Sauvignon Blanc 2021. Uh, I looked this one up and astonishingly for a silver medal winner, um, it's just £5.49 uh, if you could find it in store, which is remarkable really, don't know how they do it. Um, awarding their 91 points, the judges said, delicately elegant with beautifully composed flavours of savoury herbs, zesty lemon and an evocative hint of freshly cut grass. Refreshing on the finish with a lingering stream of cool minerals. Can't promise a lingering stream of cool minerals, uh, but this is at least a refreshing finish. Uh, thanks for listening. Uh, my sincere thanks to Teresa for tearing herself away from the winery for a fascinating chat. And thank you to you too for listening. Uh, you can follow us at Food FM Radio on Instagram or Twitter or both. And I'm Mr. Venusaurus on Instagram and Twitter. If you'd like to follow me, you're very welcome. For now, though, do join us next time. Goodbye. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world.